Hello, my name is Liva Bonnevie and this is episode 6 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. Today I have invited Professor Emeritus of Equine Medicine, Christopher Pollitt. Chris is a veterinarian based in Queensland, Australia. And after 15 years as a general practitioner and veterinary surgeon, he decided to dedicate the rest of his career to understanding the hoof mechanism and a feared and painful condition known as equine laminitis, for funginet in Norwegian. And his ambitious goal was to make it a preventable and curable disease. Over the last 38 years, Chris has written and co-written more than 200 publications, the majority of which are related to the horse's foot. He has also studied feral horses in seven different habitats and looked at and challenged the existing theories about the hoof mechanism. Trust me, this voice is worth listening to. We most certainly have important issues to cover today, so I'm not going to waste much time on formalities, but I do want to welcome you to the Clan of the Horses podcast, Professor Chris Pollitt. And I was wondering if you could start off by giving us an insight in how this all started for you, this lifelong interest in the hoof mechanism and the hoof's pathology. Well, thank you for the uh, op- uh, opportunity to, to speak to you, Liv, and uh, to your audience in Norway and perhaps the rest of the world, because this is my favorite subject. And... Uh, Probably since I was uh, 40 years old, before I was 40, I was a general practitioner and, of course, encountered horses and the problems with their feet through my time in practice. And then when I joined the university, I drifted into uh, studying the horse's foot because of the problems that I encountered in practice and the lack of knowledge, particularly with laminitis. And Trying to study laminitis brought all, me always back to the foundation of pathology, which is understanding the anatomy. You can't understand or talk sensibly about horses' uh, foot diseases, foot conditions, particularly laminitis, without a thorough understanding of the anatomy. So that led me down a path where I, I've become not just an expert on laminitis, but uh, I have uh, come to understand the horse's foot like I would not have believed 30, 40 years ago. There's so many intricate, wonderful details that have uh, presented themselves to me that I'm still in wonder about the uh, how it operates and how uh, what a achievement it is of evolution to produce this single hoof surrounding the bone inside uh, which is attached to the rest of the skeleton and the rest of the wonderful apparatus that uh, allows a horse to gallop uh, through the forests in Norway and over the central Australian deserts if they're feral here. So the study of laminitis and the study of anatomy have gone hand in hand and uh, I know we're going to finish on the subject but it, it took me when a particular PhD student came to me and asked about barefoot horses and asked about what happens with uh, feral horses, wild horses, who's looking after their feet. 
what sort of feet are they? Are they the natural paradigm that we should be aiming for with our domestic horses? And that took us, Brian Hampson and I, into seven, seven different habitats for wild horses, feral horses. And one of them in particular was the Central Australian Desert, which is tough for horses. It's a very harsh environment. Every seven years in that harsh environment, it's raining. It's raining in the central desert as we speak. There's been inches and inches of rain. And I know that the grass in that country will be above the horse's fetlocks within a few weeks. And the horses will go from being very thin, from the mares losing their foals from malnutrition, to suddenly blooming with shiny hair coats. And there'll be a foal crop in the next uh, 18 months or so which will rival what we can achieve in the very best uh, reproductive facilities amongst domestic horses. And that's how well adapted horses are through the thousands, millions of years of their evolution to surviving in this uh, huge variety of habitats. Because some of the horses we studied were in the uh, mountains of central New Zealand, the so-called Kamanawa horses, where they have lush pasture and uh, plenty to eat and never run out of uh, food, always have access to water, don't have to travel long distances, and their feet live are terrible. They're just uh, a pathological disaster. So these are horses that uh, don't have to travel long distance, are not trimming and wearing their hooves themselves. So the, the thing that I learned in particular, it happened one morning, if I can paint a picture for you, I'd, uh, I'd camped out in the desert um, by myself with my camera um, in my swag, which is a rolled up uh, bedroll. And so I was quite self-sufficient on the edge of a, uh, of, uh, of a of a trail or a pad, as we call them, where horses were going to uh, travel. And I was halfway between a spring of permanent water and food 10 kilometers away. So all of these horses had to come to water and travel 20 kilometers every third day. So they had no water for three days. You know, it, looking after domestic horses, you'd be prosecuted for keeping horses off water for, for three days. You'd be prosecuted. It would be considered cruelty. But these well-adapted feral de desert horses had to do that. And the mares were, of course, feeding their newborn foals. So they're losing fluid from their bodies to the foal. And they're all having to get some food to maintain their own nutrition, their own energy levels and then walk back to the water. So I was camped in my swag through the night, halfway between the water and the food. And when I woke up in the morning uh, for the sun rising, I was busy filming everything. And the horses started to come along these trails towards me. And I filmed them going by. And I heard something really special. So it wasn't just the footfall of the horses that I could hear. I could hear them brushing against rocks. And after they'd gone by, I went to the rocks on the edges of this pad, this trail, and the 
edges of the rocks, and they're sharp-edged rocks, but the edges of the rocks next to the trail were smooth, polished. On the other side, sharp edges. So these horses were going by and touching their hooves, and you could see the you could see keratin on the rocks. Uh, this is happening with virtually every step the horses take. It, those horses were taking. So it dawned on me that these horses, uh, in this particular environment, had the type of feet that they had because of their environment. So the environment was shaping their hooves. And the hooves were able to keep up with the wear and tear. Now, we don't know how many horses were lost to the population because their hooves couldn't keep up. Obviously, having to travel 40, 60 kilometers between food and water must have taken its toll on some, and they're gone from the population. And I can show you material, and, and many of your listeners uh, might have, might, will know this work, because Brian and I have toured Norway, and we've spoken at several seminars two or three years ago. And uh, we've presented all of this work. Brian has presented his work in Norway, and as, as have I. So there are, will be listeners who are familiar with that work. But it was uh, a revelation to me to realize that uh, the hoof, the keratinized part, had this, uh, what we call an ideal shape. We couldn't trim it better with a rasp. And it was doing it by itself in conjunction with its environment. You couldn't call it evolution. These horses have been feral or resident in this environment for, we calculated something like 30 generations, which isn't enough to make an evolutionary change. But what it is telling us how the horse is gifted by evolution with this adaptation that will allow it to do these enormous treks through the desert, food and water, keep the hooves in contact, able to stay mobile and live. Their newborn foals were following and probably struggling to keep up. But nevertheless, the foals were growing up. There were plenty of foals that were two or three months of age. So they've survived that first two or three days of being born with very little nutrition in their bodies, but able to keep up with the band. These horses are living in bands one stallion, three or four mares, and their foals. So some of these horses, uh, because of the pressure on the environment, were being rounded up and culled to keep the numbers down. Because if you don't keep the numbers of the feral horses down, controlled, they run out of food and starve to death. And to starve to death in the heat of the Central Australian summer, with no water or too weak to go to food and stay near the water and die there is a welfare disaster. It's, it's the cruelest thing you could ever imagine. And they're doing it to themselves. Well, we are responsible for putting them there in the first place. So I feel we do have a duty to control the numbers. I know that's controversial, but in the central Australian desert environment, numbers have to be controlled. So. What I'm getting to is that we had access to the feet of these horses when they were youth, when they were uh, culled. And when we, we took with us a, a laboratory plant 
pathology equipment. So we were able to microscopically analyze the internal structures of the hooves. And although the outside of the hooves looked great, trim that you'd die for, the inside had a pathology and it had the pathology of laminitis, chronic laminitis, not severe, but definitely present. In some of the horses or all of the horses? Nearly all of the horses had some pathology. So even though the hoof to the outside looked like something you'd planned to produce with your rasp, with your equipment, internally, this natural horse's foot was not perfect. It, it had sometime in its early life coped with severe damage and it looked like chronic laminitis. So what we don't know is whether that was happening when they were babies, when they were young, the pressure on their feet, or whether there was some other factor. We can't imagine it could have been insulin dysregulation, the cause of laminitis in your country, because these horses are exercising constantly. So that cannot, even though they do get fairly fat in the good times, we can't anticipate insulin ever being a factor. So they could have had access to, it's hard to imagine, uh, uh, carbohydrate-rich pasture sufficient to give them some sort of hindgut carbohydrate overload laminitis. So it's a best mystery. But what it did dispel is this uh, uh, myth of the perfect wild natural foot. So are you saying that uh, it is really a myth that it is a perfect healthy hoof? Yeah, well, it didn't exist. Now, tempering that is that these horses were functional. They were working well in their environment. Even though they had this lamellar pathology, um, they were fine. They were coping with their environment. So again, the hoof has this, uh, has this capacity to heal, to regenerate, to cope with uh, problems that it encountered in its early stages. Now, other environments had other problems. Some of the horses had long flared toes and those flares would break off. And these were horses in wet environments that uh, perhaps uh, were so wet in terms of soft sand that uh, the, uh, the hooves had no capacity to wear their toes to the shape that the desert horses had. So it all, it was a fascinating revelation that the environment had so many influences on the shape of the hoof. Nutrition-wise, uh, underfoot, the type of um, going, as we call it, whether it's gravel, whether it's stones, whether it's rocks, whether it's sand, whether it's deep pasture, all had an influence on the shape of the hoof. So what was the, the best deal for the horses when it comes to the hoof? You saw horses in different environments. So what would be the ideal environment to keep the hoof healthy for a horse? It's always a trade-off because the best hooves were in the harshest environment where the mares were skin and bone and uh, struggling to keep enough milk supply for their foals to keep the foals alive, let alone themselves. So it's always a trade-off. You can have good feet if you have to travel long distances. Now, here's an interesting thing. I had uh, satellite tracking collars on some of these bands and 
we had a wonderful rain event three years ago where inches of rain fell in the desert. And since that time, up till just a week ago, it's been bone dry, very little rain, perhaps um, perhaps 100 millimetres in the whole year uh, for the last three years. So the horses are totally dependent on permanent springs or water that's been, uh, well, permanent, let's say permanent springs, permanent water. And some of those do exist and the horses know where they are. But you, you drive 50 kilometers away from that water and the grass starts to appear and kangaroos and emus start to appear because the feral, feral animals aren't there because there's no water. So the horses are totally dependent on their water. Water is the key factor in their lives. So it's a trade-off, isn't it? So when we take on a domestic horse, we have a, we have a covenant with that animal to supply it with proper nutrition, not excess nutrition, but certainly enough nutrition to allow it to develop its bones and its muscles and its, uh, its skin quality and its mental acuity. And in return, it gives us the, the thrill of being able to ride it and uh, drive it or compete with it or just enjoy it, looking at it in our paddocks and fields. Um, but we also have an obligation to look after its feet because the feet uh, um, were the key to the survival, particularly of the desert horses. You said no foot, no horse, and no, nowhere was it truer than these uh, desert horses. So, um... You, when you started uh, looking into the science of the hoof, is it correct that that was around 40 years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This uh, study of the feral horses feet was fairly recent, the last five or six years. And it was 100, 100 horses or something? Uh, yeah, we had 100 feet that we could analyze with the microscope. You know, we looked at a lot more and filmed a lot more. Uh, but a uh, hundred was, as you read in the in the published papers, a hundred was the number. That was, you know, significant number to analyse. But okay, my studies of the horses' foot go back uh, uh, thirty-eight years. Thirty-eight years. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm just calculating when I started and uh, my recent birthday. So. <laughs> Um, I started when I was 40, and now I'm 78, so that's 38 years. And what a journey it's been. Um, and I've been fortunate along the path of this career to have met individuals that have influenced me greatly and supplied me with uh, uh, wonderful assistance in understanding the process. I've had some... Uh, uh, excellent postgraduate students who've collaborated with me and together we've developed and discovered new information about the anatomy and the functioning of the horse's uh, foot. Notice I say foot rather than hoof. Uh, uh, people, there's a bit of a mix up about the word hoof and foot. To some people, the hoof is just the keratinized capture. So you could take the 
you can take the hoof off. I mean, you can see this. This is a, this is the hoof. It's the, the hoof capsule. I, I can see it, but my listeners will have a hard time seeing it. But it is a hoof capsule, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have the hoof capsule in my hand. Uh, and that's just the keratinized portion. And, and in the, I don't know how it translates in Norwegian, but the, the hoof is also considered to be the foot in uh, perhaps uh, in general communications in general in lay language but really we're talking about the foot which is everything including the bones and the tendons uh, and the soft tissues inside because they're all integrated so i've been able to with the help of some friends translate from the early german and the early french and uh, some of those early authors boulet in france in in the 1800s was uh, suggesting this uh, pumping function of the foot. And he realized, you know, over 120 years ago that uh, the heels expand with each um, load, with each footfall, when the horse is in its stance phase, uh, when it's walking, when it's trotting, when it's cantering, the bones inside the hoof, compress the soft tissues from above and the heels expand slightly and the, the toe sinks inwards slightly, a few millimeters, but that happens with every footfall. And it isn't enough for the arteries fed by the pumping of the heart to push the blood back to the heart. There's no way for that blood to return to the heart. The heart does not suck. So there's no negative pressure bringing the blood back. And this is why that expanding and contracting that movement of the soft tissues inside the hoof capsule is so vitally important because that drives the blood out of the veins, up the leg, not allowing it to flow back because of the valves in those veins. And so the blood will be returned to the heart very efficiently. You're going to make notes. Yeah, now I just uh, found the pen and paper here. <laughs> because this is really the key, the hoof mechanism. This author, Boulay in France, uh, he wrote about that. And it's as true today as it was then. But I've been fortunate enough to be able to take that information and work on it and expand it a little bit further. Because with my colleagues, we've been able to put probes, they're called uh, microdialysis probes, in the deep tissues of the horse's foot, in between the lamellae, which are part of the suspensory apparatus of the, of the bone, the coffin bone inside the foot. And we can measure whether or not there is perfusion. If the horse is standing dead still, we can drain fluid from the lamellae and analyze it in real time, a few minutes later. If the horse is made to stand absolutely still, the energy in the uh, fluid surrounding these vital connecting tissues starts to decline. And lactic acid, the end products of metabolism, start to build up. 
So in other words, there is stress developing. Uh, I use the word stress in a very in a very loose way here. Uh, what's a better term? The, the tissues are becoming um, they're choking. They're becoming starved. They're becoming uh, compromised. That's better. Compromised by standing absolutely still. Uh, we forced horses to do this by lifting one leg so they can't move the other foot. And when that happens, uh, the, the tissues decline in their, in their physiology. They become compromised. And we imagined that we never took it to this extreme, of course, that this would cause irrevocable damage and, uh, and cause serious pathology, probably laminitis. Now, the reason why we did that experimentally is that in the horse population, every now and then a horse will break a leg. It will tear some you know, terrible uh, ligaments off the sesamoid bones or become have a joint infection, a penetrating wound into the fetlock joint, for instance, a piece of wire or stake gets into the joint capsule and that's extremely painful. So much so that the horse will try to keep that injured leg off the ground and take all of the weight on the supporting limb. We call this supporting limb laminitis. So it's one of the three models of uh, how laminitis develops, supporting limb laminitis. And it's devastated the, uh, the, the horse population, the horse owners and the surgeons who've tried to fix these problems because they do wonderful surgery use the most expensive antibiotics to flush the joints out if they're infected, uh, the state-of-the-art uh, metal implants to keep the bones together if they've fractured parts of their, uh, of their skeleton down low, the distal limb. Only 10, uh, two weeks, five weeks later to lose the horse because of this devastating laminitis that's developed in the supporting limb. So it's became very important for us to understand that. So getting back to this experimental horse that's standing on one foot for a period, if we took away that uh, uh, situation and allowed the horse to walk, just the simple act of walking restored everything back to harmony, perfect perfusion of those tissues, the glucose levels, in the lamella tissues return to normal. The lactic acid, the uh, byproducts of uh, anaerobic metabolism were restored down to normal and everything was perfect. So what it showed us, showed us was that the very act of walking was essential to the horse. And not just that, but even standing in stocks, if we confine the horse, uh, every time it looks to the left, we discovered that the perfusion change. If it looked to the right, the perfusion change in the hoof. So there is this dynamic um, toing and froing of the circulation going on every minute of the horse's life. Grazing, taking a step, stopping, munching on the food, another step. So in the fields, in the paddocks, the horse is circulating the, the blood through its feet, supplying the vital energy. You've got to remember what the function of the blood supply is. 
and uh, if I don't know how much time we've got, but we've got uh, plenty. you're allowing me to uh, um, travel off on tangents, but uh, to me they're vitally interesting. So, but to me too. So uh, no worries. <laughs> am, I am I allowed to do this? Maybe we'll have to have more podcasts in the future, <laughs> or other people that have worked on this that I can suggest. But I, but I think it is really important for people to understand the hoof mechanism and how. I mean, one of the things that I was told when I had a barefoot horse many years ago was that the, the frog was like a beating heart under the hoof. So when you took off the shoe, the frog would touch uh, the ground and it would be the frog that kind of allowed the blood to, to f run freely through the hoof. But uh, you have a different perspective. Well, um, I don't put so much emphasis on the frog as other people do. Because um, I've seen over my career, many horses where the frog cannot touch the ground because of the shape of the foot, their contracted heels, whatever. The horses are fine. They're doing hundreds of miles of endurance competition with no foot problems whatsoever. So I've seen the whole range of foot conformations and tried to look for the consequences of what many would consider something that needs correcting. And I want to uh, get back to this um, concept of the suspensory apparatus of the distal phalanx, because that's key to understanding what uh, the horse's foot is all about. Because once you understand that the bones, the, the coffin bone, what would you like to call it? The P3, the coffin bone, the distal phalanx? Yeah, I think people know, at least we're talking about the bones connected to the hoof. Okay, the the, there's yeah. one major yeah. bone inside the uh, inside the hoof capsule, and the surface of that bone is connected to the inside surface of the hoof. And to make that inside surface efficient, the inside surface is not a, a smooth surface, not a smooth. Um, uh, layer. The layer is folded like the pages of a book and these small pages start at the heels at the bars and run all the way around the inside of the hoof. And from the distal phalanx, the bone inside the foot, are other tissues connective tissues that connect to these lamellae from the inside. So you've got two interdigitating layers of what we call lamellae. Lamellae is the Latin word for leaves, almost like your name leaves. Um, so in the horse, these individual pages are subdivided many times over into secondary pages or leaflets, if you like. So there's an enormous surface area for contact. And it's between these leaves that we have capillaries. And capillaries are the end tissues of the blood supply. The blood supply does nothing until it reaches the capillary bed. There's no exchange of oxygen, absorption of carbon dioxide, no delivery of energy from the blood supply until it's reached the capillary. And the capillary bed uh, down in between the lamellae is enormous. It's equivalent to the brain in 
the power that it has to deliver energy to those lamellae. In fact, in the human brain, uh, I think it's 25% of all of the glucose that's just gone from your heart with the carotid through the carotid arteries to your brain. By the time it's come back a few seconds later, 30% of the glucose has been taken up by your brain function. Now, the horse's foot is doing a similar thing. But interestingly, in the horse, the foot takes up more than its brain. Might say something about the brain of the horse. You know, I love horses, and, and the brain of the horse is just perfect for what it's been uh, evolved to do. Uh, you know, they're not smart, they're not, uh, you know, they don't solve problems, they don't think about the future. But to survive in their environment, they're perfect. And that's what I see, this perfect animal able to do the multitude of wonderful things that it can do. I mean, for goodness sake, why would a horse jump over a two-meter fence with somebody sitting on its back if it didn't have this uh, ability to understand what the human was wanting from it? sitting on its back. So they have these wonderful adaptations that we exploit for our, um, our pleasure and our artistic sensibilities. But getting back to this energy supply, so it's vital that the bone is moving inside the hoof capsule because without movement, uh, the capillary bed won't be massaged in such a way that the plasma that contains the glucose won't reach the living cells on the inside of the hoop. Now, to, to maintain, imagine, you know you've got a 500, 600 kilo, if it's a big warm blood, on top of this skeleton, down to this bone inside the foot. You've got this enormous animal above this bone. And when it's galloping, the forces on that bone double, triple with each loaded foot. So, so there's an enormous load of strain and stress between bone and hoof. And how is that achieved? To do that, you need the consumption of energy to keep things attached to each other. It's constant metabolism requires constant metabolism and the fuel for that metabolism is glucose, not oxygen, it's glucose. And glucose passes from the, the contents of the capillary, the plasma, the serum, the plasma, and then into the cell. And these are the living cells of the hoof capsule itself, which is reliant on the blood supply on the other side of its, uh, of its compartment for the energy. And then, you know, the hoof itself is dead, except at the coronary band where it's growing. And of course, on the lamella side where this attachment process is taking place. So this suspension and the maintain, maintenance of this attachment requiring energy also requires circulation. So as I've hinted, we've got inside knowledge, intimate knowledge of how that circulation is working by putting these tiny little probes that we can sample what events are taking place inside the lamellae. So getting back to the frog, it, frog <laughs> really has nothing to do 
with this um, circulatory process that I'm talking about. What is vitally important is that that bone is moving inside the hoof capsule ever so slightly or to, to a large extent if the horse is moving fast, galloping, etc., with a rider on its back. But it's over-engineered and can cope with all of these stresses and strains with no problems whatsoever, as long as that suspensory lamella apparatus is intact. So uh, putting the uh, trimming, <laughs> trimming the heels or lowering the heels to put the frog on the ground has probably done, and I'm quoting a veterinarian here from a hundred years ago, who, when this idea first was proposed from the Royal Veterinary College in London, other knowledgeable people about the horse's foot said that this person who proposed that the heels and the bars should be cut so that the frog is placed on the ground, he said it did more damage, set the farrier industry back further than any other problem that the horse has ever encountered. And it set the veterinary profession back, uh, goodness knows how many years, until that idea was uh, corrected. So to me, the horse is like a, the foot is like a heart. It does depend on compression and uh, movement for the blood to be returned to the heart. So when they say, when they say um, heart, I, do they mean that uh, although the horse is a perfectly functional giant heart in its chest, pumping blood down there, do they mean that that's not necessary? I don't think so. I don't really know what they mean when they say it's a heart, but certainly that movement and the squeezing of the digital cushion against the cartilages, the lateral or ungual cartilages, against the hoof and against the tight skin of the, of the pastern, that loading and squeezing and the expansion of the heels is vitally important to return the blood to the heart. But that's only part of the circulation. The key part is the lamella circulation, which is dependent on interaction between bone and hoof and the supply of blood through the arteries that enter the bone through the, through the back of the bone. So um, the horses don't necessarily gain much uh, life quality by taking off the shoes? No, no. In fact, um, I think it's um, dying out a little bit, but... Uh, there was a, a movement of hoof trimming that came out of Germany. I'm going to interrupt the interview with Chris Pollitt at this point because um, I discovered that Chris was really reluctant of naming this method by its real name. So I said that uh, as the editor of this podcast, uh, I think it is vital that we do actually have some sort of transparency when it comes to the topics that we talk about. So instead of having him naming the method, which I for sure uh, can respect that he would rather not do uh, as a respectful gesture towards his peers, I name the method as the Strasser method. And for sure, if you have any experience with barefoot horses, this would come as no surprise based on the interview that follows. But um, 
But I have to say that I appreciate that quality with Chris, that he is not going after anybody. And neither am I, but I, well, sort of going after something. I'm going after the truth about the hoof mechanism, and I think it is, it is relevant to be transparent about which methods we are, in fact, talking about and what kind of trimming we are, in fact, talking about. So just a little editorial note and back to the interview. You came out of Germany, and I, I think even German, let's call them caregivers, the caregivers to the horse's foot around the world, have backed off from what uh, the Strasser method was advocating which was lowering the heels and putting the frog on the ground and changing the palmer ankle. You know, here's the thing about all of the hundred horses that we looked at from those environments, all the feral horses, none of them had a negative or uh, zero palmer angle of the bone inside the hoof capsule. And one of the things the Strasser method was advocating was that the heels should be lowered so that the bone was parallel to the ground and none of those feral horses ever had that they all had seven degrees plus or minus a couple so it's just not a thing that should be uh, counted but if we assume that barefoot trimming has evolved since then yeah yeah and, and people have come to realize that you can harm horses by um taking off too much of the wall uh too much of the heels and leaving them on hard ground. And they will lie down after three or four days because it hurts so much. And uh, sometimes you can trim the sole and see where the, the bone, the distal phalanx, has uh, cut through the tissues because it's being pushed up from below. I'm a believer that the wall is the structure of the hoof that should make contact with the ground that takes the greater load as a sole is a covering between the perimeters of the wall essential of course but it shouldn't be the main uh weight bearing load bearing structure of the hoof that is something that the walls have been designed to do now here's here's the thing if you take a coffee cup, a plastic coffee, coffee cup, and stand it on the, on the table and squeeze from above, you've got something like what's happening with the horse's foot. Because the bone is suspended inside the hoof capsule. And it's irrelevant what the sole is doing. No matter whether it, the sole could be standing on some deep sand, of course, and the sole is making contact with that deep sand as the wall sinks in. But above that, nothing changes. The bone is still suspended from the lamellae of the inner hoof wall. So to, to advocate that the sole can be the major load-bearing structure of the foot by removing the peripheral, the edges of the wall, is nonsense. Uh, and can do damage because if you take a, take enough wall away, the sole will be forced against the borders of the bone from the inside and cause laminitis-like symptoms. The horse will become a laminitic horse. If you remove the walls and leave them walking on the soles in the mistaken idea that you're 
releasing the load on the lamellae by forcing them to walk on their soles. It's uh, counterproductive. It will hurt the horse. Horse is not meant to do that. Have you seen many uh, barefoot horses uh, that are ridden that are fully operative, sound and healthy? And well, yeah, but depends depends where they're ridden, and and a lot of people who claim to be riding barefoot blur the definition of barefoot by putting something else on the hoof capsule, tough plastic. And those plastic slippers are wonderful things. And you can glue them on and ride. The horse is perfectly comfortable, no damage to the hoof itself, and they can do endurance rides, etc. Fine. Um, that's great. Good stuff. But they're not truly barefoot. But they're what they're saying, what they're, what they're saying is that they're not shod with steel or metal. And they claim that the now the heels are expanding and the foot mechanism is operating. Uh, they claim better than if it was shod with nails. But there's thousands of horses, you know, millions of horses probably, around the world competing in every sport with nailed on shoes. And there's no pathology, there's no damage, there's no consequences to that if it's done properly professionally but i'm all it's fine uh for people to use the slippers and keep them going that way that's fine i've no problem with that but to to to, to try to run them to, to believe that that keratin that forms the walls and the soles is tough enough to give you a hundred kilometers of riding over stones and gravel is uh is asking for too much i've seen horses lamed that way i mean i've ridden endurance and uh, if a shoe comes off they're very tender footed on that foot until i can get a plastic uh, temporary shoe on so with my endurance horses they were always shod you know and i was my family and i were very successful endurance competitors mm. with shod nailed on fixed shoes mm. no problem no pathology ever connected to shoot horses. No, not right. And perhaps the most aggressive endurance riders are those in the Middle East. And they, they, they've tried training and competing in their environment and conditions. You know, I've consulted in Dubai and all of their endurance horses are shot. They have to be. They've tried no shoes and the hoofs just wear out and they're, and they're lame. They can't compete. If we use the example of the desert horses, their hooves are very hard and very tough. Sure. But as I said, we might have uh, might be only looking at uh, a percentage of the population that have survived. Those that had sore feet, dead and gone, not in the gene pool anymore. Uh, and sure, uh, I, don't, I don't for a moment advocate that every horse in the world should be shod. Um, by no means think that you know most of the farriers that I know and deal with and teach around here in Australia or around the world for that matter recognize that about 50% of their income comes from trimming barefoot trimming plenty of horses don't need shoes to survive it's all function what do we expect of the horse you've got to use your brain to work out if I'm going to you know, ride between fjords, 
over mountains, over tracks. Uh, I'm going to need something pretty solid on those hooves if I want to be have a, a comfortable sound horse at the end of the trail. Is that in your experience? Yeah, my, my experience, I have, uh, kind of have one foot in each camp. I've been following barefoot horses in, you know, over a 15-year period. And I've seen less than 10 horses functioning 100%. And the rest of them are degrees of not really being all that well. And still people insist on having them barefoot. And that's, I find it, um, I find it challenging. If the horse is functioning and having a good and happy sound life without shoes, by all means. But if he's lame two, three times, four times, five times, six times a year, then it's just not good enough. The advantage that the trimmers have over um, shoes, barriers, is that they revisit the horse every three weeks or four weeks and trim. So they do keep that toe short, which is essential. And I've got horses here myself and my granddaughter's ponies are trimmed i trim but my daughter's eventing horses are shot and i don't do that uh, and they're all perfectly sound and doing winning ribbons everything's in harmony um so the problem with uh shoeing is that it costs money uh, there's time involved. I mean, you, you're a busy lady. You've got to get home to the farrier for the horse to be presented, to be everything, to be organised. You know, and it's a big job. Uh, and the interval is often too long, six, seven weeks. By then, the hoof has grown too long, and it is straining the tendons. It is bad for the horse. So it's all a balancing act, isn't it? As long as it works for the horse, it works for me. <laughs> hmm. And uh, yeah, it budget the it, economics comes into it as well. So many things. But you have to be able to afford to have a horse to have a horse. I think. Sure, you know, we have to have a license to drive a car. I wonder whether we should have licenses to own a horse um, to look after it properly. Some people. So yes, we should. We should have, yeah. Could I also ask you about your um, st uh, studies of laminitis? Because that's been, that's been like the headline of your career, I think. Sure. When I first started, it was very easy to find laminitis horses everywhere. They were going to the abattoirs for destruction. They were coming to the vet school for euthanasia. They were coming for treatment, and some of them were um, uh, treatable, and some were not. Um, the partner farrier that I worked with, Keith Swan, and I used to run a clinic at the veterinary school, and we had cars and trailers parked you know, down the highway coming into our clinic for laminitis uh, treatment, corrective shoeing. But now it's almost a thing of the past. I think because of our promotion around the world of what it's all about, we've given veterinarians tools to combat it better. And particularly with the catastrophic surgery situation where a horse has severe gut problems, colitis or colic surgery, the 
10, 15% of those horses would go on to develop laminitis and die or be euthanized. They might recover from the colic or the colitis or whatever, metritis of the uterus, lung problems. And now they don't uh, because two things. Well, the most common form of laminitis is because of insulin dysregulation. And that's the feature of Norway. You know, your wonderful spring and autumn pastures where the temperature's dropping, sugar's accumulating because of the low metabolism of the grass, but the sunshine and the um, grass is still uh, accumulating sugars. And you know, all of the laminitis I saw in Norway was due to insulin dysregulation. And it was a waste of time me talking to veterinarians about colic surgery complications because they rarely saw it. Um, now, the thing about the catastrophic, the sepsis-related laminitis is that we realized that the horse is, uh, has this another wonderful evolutionary adaptation live on top of the wonderful suspensory apparatus and that wonderful hoof, the most evolved um, skin or integument uh, piece of evolution in the mammalian kingdom, not a, not mammalian kingdom, the animal kingdom, because the bird's feather is a wonderful piece of keratin design from evolution, and the hoof is equal to that in its complexity. So when horses are in their natural environment, of course, as you would know in the north, that sometimes their feet must be extremely cold. They're standing in water with everything else frozen around, grazing grass, rushes on the water's edge, or deep snow, which is slushy, etc. So they never seem to suffer any discomfort. I mean, you and I would be wearing gloves and special boots to survive. Uh, above the Arctic Circle. Horses have no problem. So what is it about their feet that allows them? And one of the earliest things I discovered was that they do have this uh, extra component to their circulation in their foot called an arteriovenous shunt, which is controlled by the brain. And a horse can turn, switch on a heating mechanism to their foot within minutes of reaching of the brain, receiving signals from the foot, telling it that the temperature is getting critically low. Critically, if it gets any lower, you're going to have life-threatening damage. So the hoof just switches on this extra blood supply. And that arterial blood that should be going to the capillaries for nutrition is switched off for a moment. And it goes to these things called arteriovenous shunts. So now about 80% of the blood in the horse's foot is in the veins. So now suddenly the horse can heat those veins and flood the foot with hot blood and the temperature will come right up again. And the horse is oblivious to this. It's just perfectly comfortable with one foot that's 25 degrees and another foot that's two degrees. No discomfort in either one. They can be out of sync, or that this can be happening together. Now, my friend um, Sveinbacher, he helped me with his research. 
he, in the winter, I gave him, lent him some uh, data loggers and implanted, screwed these little probes onto the feet. So he has helped me gather this information because during those those extremes in 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 the weather, um, the ambient temperature could be minus 15, but the hoof never goes below two or three degrees Celsius. And at the same time, one foot could be 25 and one foot could be two or three degrees. So we know that horses are tolerant of the cold. Doesn't cause any welfare issues whatsoever. No discomfort, no frostbite. You've never seen a horse with frostbite of its feet. The Antarctic explorers down here in the southern hemispheres took Icelandic ponies to the South Pole or tried to. They didn't succeed, but that was because of nutrition, not any problem with their feet. So I realized that uh, back here in Queensland, where the temperature outside is nearly 30 degrees at the moment, and it's still early in the morning, that I could stand a horse's leg in a rubber boot up to its knee with ice cubes and water. And that horse would stand perfectly happy for two days, three days with that foot, with that water surrounding its leg and hoof and foot uh, at about two degrees Celsius with no discomfort whatsoever. While the other foot, which is out in the air, the temperature of the hoof itself might have been 25 degrees. The temperature of the hoof in the cold boot was uh, five degrees. So what, what would happen if we, clearly the metabolism, if the tissues in that foot are at five degrees, surely their metabolism is under control. It's not dead, but it's certainly suppressed. And surely, because I'd realized that laminitis is a metabolic process, a normal process gone wrong, if we could halt or suppress the metabolism during laminitis, we might be able to prevent laminitis. And that's what we went on to do. We induced laminitis in horses with one cold foot, one hot foot. Only the hot foot got laminitis, never the cold foot. We went on to have all four feet in a big tub of cold water circulating. They stayed in that tub for four days. All they wanted was more food. Never tried to get out of the cold. And the horses that didn't get that treatment all developed laminitis. The horses that had perfect feet that uh, were in the water for four days, four days. I mean, you can't do that with people. People can only tolerate cold therapy for, for 20, 30 minutes. So why does that happen? So the horses have evolved this adaptation to withstand the cold. They survived the ice ages. Uh, so they're very well adapted to the arteries divide at the fetlock. And so the arteries containing the hot blood can be cooled as the blood is going down to the foot. And then the whole hoof can be kept cold as well. So being able to treat horses with cold therapy, distal limb cooling, when they're sick in hospital, when not at other times they would have been euthanized, destroyed because they had laminitis. Now, the odds of them developing laminitis, and this has been proven by stats in big American equine hospitals, the chances of, this, of them surviving 
is about 95%, whereas it, before it was way down uh, that they would not survive uh, in any significant numbers. So it's a proven now established method that distal limb cooling stops laminitis in its tracks. But the problem, of course, is being able to anticipate that it's going to happen. That's the problem. And it's difficult. But you're talking about welfare. How many hospitals are prepared to put the welfare of the horse paramount over their own comfort and their own profit margin in hospitals? How many people are going to employ nurses and technicians to be with that horse round the clock for four days to keep the feet cool? And I can tell you, not many, not many. But the ones that do are successful. And that's why we've seen the incidence of that sort of laminitis. It takes four days with the um, chirotherapy? I said four days because that's about the time that the, the medicine people in the hospital are saving the horse with fluid therapy and antibiotics and uh, whatever else is needed to return the intestines if they're severely inflamed to normal for them to recover from the colic surgery, if that's the case. You know, often with colic surgery, you've got a twist of bowel, and when you correct that, there is a massive, uh, what we call reperfusion injury, where toxins and uh, bacteria are absorbed from this uh, reversed um, corrected surgery. And there's a period of huge risk when, in the 24 hours after surgery. And with the cooling of the limbs, at least the laminitis can be controlled. Now, that's now no longer the main focus of laminitis research. I want to just acknowledge while we're talking here that the colleague who's now a professor of uh, equine medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, the New Bolton Center in North America, Andrew Van Epps, he was originally my PhD student and now is a professor of uh, medicine. Uh, still doing laminitis research at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, we're still strong colleagues. We're still publishing together. My other strong colleague is uh, Melody, Melody Delart of uh, Dutch origin. Um, so she came to do a PhD with me on the role of insulin in laminitis. We already knew from previous studies that we could induce laminitis in ponies if we elevated their blood insulin way above physiological levels. You know, you know the pancreas with its islets of Langerhans is responding to glucose in the blood. And if it ever gets slightly above normal, in its insulin is released by those tissues in the pancreas and the blood glucose is rapidly taken up by the tissues that uh, can respond to the insulin, particularly the muscles, and the blood sugar is returned to normal. Now, the horses and ponies that become obese uh, inherit, inherit a predisposition to not controlling their glucose properly. Insulin-dysregulated horses and ponies have an insulin that goes up and doesn't come down, and they start to develop what we've come to realize is a lamella problem. Now, 
with the septic form of, uh, you know, acute shock laminitis, there's separation of the lamellae. So the bone drops into the roof capsule. And of course, every step is painful, as you know. But with uh, the insulin form of laminitis, it's not such a precipitous drop of the bone. Those lamellae stretch and weaken under the influence of the insulin. If it's a very high prolonged insulin, this drop may be severe, but most of the cases are relatively mild. Sure, pony is painful, but if you bring the insulin under control, it, it can return, can improve, can return to, to near normal. So we've given veterinarians the tools now to monitor insulin in their horses. There's a thing called the oral sugar test. We can feed in the morning after a night of um, just moderate intake of low quality food, we can feed a small amount of sugar for breakfast for the horse or pony, and then take a blood sample before you've fed the horse, and then 90 minutes later, take another sample of blood, have it analyzed for insulin, and the dysregulated animals will have a high insulin that won't come down for a long time, then the normal horse will have a little spike, just like you and me, normal little spike, and then the blood sugar is brought into control by the insulin. So there's this class. So now a veterinarian can go to an owner that has uh, chronic problems in laminitis every spring and every autumn and find the horses that need extra care. Now the care is controlling the diet. Don't let them into those autumn, spring pastures. Don't let them into any pasture that's uh, uh, likely to have uh, high sugar content. When the pasture is really growing fast, the sugar is being used up by the pasture. So there's a lot of uh, knowledge about pasture that needs to be uh, taken on board as well. Um, exercise, daily exercise, keeps the blood sugar down. As I mentioned, the muscles to respond to insulin and suck up the glucose. So if the horse is walking, you know, Melody and I, and Brian Hampson, we designed a, uh, a maze for horses to walk along and the door would open, they'd hear the door open and the food was available, but they had to walk 50 meters and come back the other way and eat this bit of food. And then that door would close and the other side would open and then walk all the way back. And just that amount of walking, I'll show you the video if you like. I'll send you the link of that little video, it's cute. Um, and you'll meet uh, Melody uh, in the video. And uh, she speaks very well, she's a very good speaker. You should interview her. Uh, uh, you should interview Brian too, and Tuna Vienna. I communicate with Tuna pretty frequently, uh, but I haven't for a little while. And she used to come out to our wild horse week. We ran a, a week called Brumby Week in the in the central, you know, in the central Australian environment. And we'd we'd take them all over. She Turner loved the desert. She was she's in the wrong country. Um, okay, so incidence of laminitis is uh, down because we've discovered the true mechanism through studying the the anatomy and the and the physiology, the function of all of the key cells in the suspensory apparatus, and we've given veterinarians the tools to uh, detect 
diagnose and treat laminitis better than ever before. Must feel good after having spent 38 years on the subject. Yeah, and there's there's new stuff too. I'm just uh, writing a paper right now with my collaborators reviewing a paper we've just written. But that's another story, and I, I shouldn't, I, I, I don't want to go there, but it's a, it's a wonderful new discovery. Uh, watch this space because it, it, it's going to be a surprise, and it takes you back right back to Boulay in France, who was proposing that movement and heel expansion and uh, compression of the digital cushion are all involved in the uh, perfusion of those vital tissues, the lamellae. Um, one thing that I should mention is that although the nails that we put only on the front of the foot when we shoe do restrict the hoof mechanism somewhat, do not obliterate it, do not abolish it. The hoof mechanism is working perfectly fine with shoes on or shoes off. So that means that the argument for having a barefoot horse should be something else than maintaining a good hoof mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. I think that's a very important note. Yeah. Yeah. Barefoot's fine if the horses are not being asked to perform at any level where their hooves might be compromised. No need for shoes if they were running on grass and paddocks and everything. We put them on for traction, of course. I wouldn't want my daughter doing what she does in eventing without uh, good, strong traction underfoot. Do you, have you ever show jumped or evented? Uh, Icelandic horses. It's my thing. Gated horses. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you know that um, uh, not slipping on yours terrain while you're trying to turn to complete a jump is very important. Hmm. It's still slip, but uh, the chances are less if you've got a, 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 a good shoe on and a well-placed shoe um, and nice short hoof walls, not long toes. Hmm. Can I ask you like a, a final question? You've had a long career as a rider and as a veterinarian specialized in hooves. Um, is there one thing that in particular that you thought uh, that you think that it would be important for everybody who deals with horses to know? Like one, um, we have a word for it in Norway. It's like that one thing that you can never really let go of because you think it's so important. Uh, well, I'm sure you asked this question of everybody. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I didn't write it in the letter for you. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's my because this is this podcast is is uh, my aim is to improve horse welfare. So whenever I would talk to somebody like you, I would uh, yeah I would challenge you to see if if you have one thing that you think this is really an important issue. Um, there's um, something about horses that uh, is very spiritual to me. As I've sat with them in the wild, you know, I feel very fortunate to have been able to experience horses living totally free and have been free for generations. We're afraid of mankind, naturally. 
there's no reason for them to be afraid in the central Australian desert. They're not shot or hunted. They're occasionally chased by helicopters, but it's still within their mindset to flee any strange scent. So I've had to be careful. I've had to be like a hunter with my camera to be downwind and to be hidden. And I've seen their behaviours when they when they do catch a, a whiff of my scent in the atmosphere or hear a vehicle in the distance. And so I've seen the whole range, but I've also seen them behaving beautifully quiet. I've seen stallions, you know, nickering to their mares. There's a word we use in English called the nicker, where they just gently call their mares to them. And, uh, the same sound that the mare gives to her foal. I can imitate it if you like. It's, yeah, um, please. <laughs> uh, the stallion will do that. And it's nice, nice to hear it. And he'll look up and make sure everybody's okay. And then he may see another colt or another stallion coming from another direction with his own band of mares. But he's going to challenge that stallion. And to see them approach each other and arch their necks and go through all of the dressage um, moves. You know, they piaf, stamping their feet, they're half rear, striking with their front feet and very rarely hurting each other, but it's all bluff and uh, male testosterone-driven dominance. And then to see them, quite, I've been able to get up quietly with the bands and uh, watch the uh, mares suckling their foals and not suckling other foals and this whole range of things. So I feel like I've been given a window into the uh, secret uh, evolution of the horse and to see it uh, as it would have been two or 300,000 years ago when Equus caballus first existed as a species. So I feel really lucky and privileged and I'll carry those memories for the rest of my life. I still miss them today, but you know, COVID-19 has closed all of that activity down. So that's one aspect left. The horses are just a wonderful animal. Uh, uh, with so many adaptations that we don't uh, recognize when they're just in the fields. You know, I can see my horses from here. All they're doing is eating. Uh, and I have to give them some hay later on. Maybe we'll ride them twice a week. What a life. Uh, so I've seen the other side of the coin uh, and recognized how many adaptations and I understand their mind better now. I understand why they shy when they see something strange on the ground when we're trotting along. I see why they uh, react to other horses. So I recommend people, if they ever can, to study or ex at least experience horses behaving as horses. Naturally, it's wonderful. Um, but then, as you know, I've... Uh, tried to be an educator. I've educated over the, the years that I've been a teacher of equine medicine. I've helped attempted to educate probably thousands of students. Uh, I've got a grandson now who's only one and a half years of age, and he's more difficult <laughs> to educate than these 20, 25 year old wonderful students who are studying veterinary science. He's more of a challenge, and I love it. Um, it's a bit like uh, 
this is going to sound a bit rude to, to some of your listeners, but uh, it's a bit like the politics as we see it and uh, revealing itself in America, this dichotomy of knowledge versus ignorance and how ignorance can prevail and cause such destructive consequences. And in the welfare of horses, there's still so much ignorance that is strongly held by so many people and they resist any suggestion that there's another way, another insight into true knowledge of the horse's foot. If they understood it the way I try to teach it, I'm sure uh, the welfare of horses would improve. There wouldn't be so many lame horses. Laminitis would be treated. The veterinarians would be proactive about understanding pasture, understanding the blood sugar control of the horses. But so many of them just are able to go out and earn their living by administering drugs. So my, I guess the one thing that I, I want to perhaps as a single factor looking back over the years is the battle against ignorance and to promote true scientific knowledge about the horse's foot because it's such a wonderful thing to comprehend. Thank you, Chris, for this perfect ending to a very, very interesting conversation. You're very welcome. And uh, I've enjoyed it as much as you have. You have just heard episode six from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. I want to thank my composer, Fredrik Blom, my guests, Christopher Pollitt, and last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.